Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on, as you might have guessed, into our dwell into the book of Romans. How many of you know that this is a, a fantastic book in the Bible? This is the, the book of Romans is like the gospel all wrapped up in one neat little package. If you only had one Bible that you could read, if this is the only one that you had, this is the one I'd recommend. And you read it over and over and over again. So this morning, I've entitled the message, Dead to the Law. It's Romans uh, chapter, or sorry, part 13. We're actually getting ready to start chapter 7. This is part 13. And uh, one of the key things that we need to grasp as Christians is that we are dead to the law. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about what that means. But the problem is, is that don't, the people that don't reckon themselves dead to the law, they get caught up in a little thing in the church world we like to call legalism. And this is basically where you have to follow the law or you have to do all these certain things in order to earn God's favor. If you don't go to church every Sunday, then you're backslidden. If you, if you watch TV, you're backslidden. Or if you, if you watch a, a movie, you're, I mean, there's all kinds of rules that people have come up with over time that if you don't follow these things, then all of a sudden you're not saved anymore because God won't love you. But I want to let you know now that God doesn't love us based on the things that we do. He loves us in spite of the things that we do. Can you say amen and thank God? because I've done some dumb stuff. And as a Christian, we'll find that we do live our lives in accordance to the law, or you should find your lives becoming more in line with the law. But we don't do these things because we're trying to perform or meet a standard, but rather we live a godly life as a result of fruit from a changed life. How many know that if you have saving faith and your life is changed, there's going to be evidence in your life of that change? You're going to see a difference. And we live righteously and holy, not to appease God, but as the natural response to a God who has done so much for each and every one of us. Amen? Romans 7, 1 says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul's going to go ahead and continue his argument from chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we learn that a believer now has a different relationship with the law. We learn that now we're under the law of grace and not under the law of Moses. We're now, uh, grace is what dictates everything in our lives, and we're not looking to the law trying to meet a standard. And this particular argument that Paul is going to be making, he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. This is, this is one of those where we kind of have to know what's going on with the law to, to make a difference. And, and we can say, well, well, Pastor Wayne, I'm not super familiar with Jewish law. This, the, how is this argument going to hold any sway with me? Well, the truth is, is that you actually do understand this argument. You don't get out of it that easy because so much of what happens in our life operates under the same rule of law. Did you know that if you sign a contract with somebody and they die, the contract is null and void at that point. It holds no weight. If I sign a contract with somebody and saying that, that I'll do this and they'll do that, if they pass away, I can't go to their children and say, you have to uphold this contract. Because when, when they die, the contract is null and void. This is true for, for uh, when you have parents that have a lot of debt. If they pass away, the banks can't come after you saying that you have to, to, to pay up and, and, and fulfill their debts. They can go after the estate. Once the estate is out of money, they, and if all the debts have still not been paid, 
then they can't come to the children and say, you must pay this. They can't come to distant relatives and say, you must pay this, or other near relatives, because once the person has died, all contracts are null and void, because the, the, the other end of the contract that's required for the contract to be in existence is completely gone. And there's multiple examples of this that we'll see in our day-to-day life. One of the ones that Michelle and I have just come into recently has to do with our solar system. So, what is it, six years ago or so, I think almost on six years, we bought a new house up in, in Solara, which is right next to Gladden Farms. And one of the options that we could do is we could put on a, uh, when we had it built, is we had them put on a solar system. And it's got, uh, it's, it's not too bad of a solar system. It's got nine photoelectric panels. It's got three of the, uh, the, the heat panels that just that helps heat the water. And it's tied into the HVAC system. So we actually have to go to the uh, website of the of this uh, Echo Solar is what the, the what it was called their their little product and we could program our thermostats from there. I could see how much energy was coming in from the solar, see how much things were going. I mean, it was it was awesome. I loved how it worked. It's so much easier to program your your AC on a computer than it is on one of these things right here. I don't know if you've ever tried to use one of those. Man, I had to phone a friend. At the car, I mean, those things are rough to use. Yeah, I, and it turns out I can't even use this one because I wanted to come in and, and I don't know if you noticed, the last few weeks it's been getting a little warm in here. It's because apparently humidity and heat just beat up our AC units in here. But there's programming on them. I'm like, oh, cool, I can go ahead and, and, and set for Sunday mornings to kick on at, you know, at this point, probably like 2 in the morning, so it'll be cool by the time you guys get here. And on Wednesday nights, you know, we could set a little early so somebody doesn't have to be here. But the problem is, this thing will only let you program Monday through Friday and the weekend. So that means I have to run the AC all week long. I don't know if you guys know how much businesses get charged for it. You think your electric bill is expensive? You should see what they charge businesses for an electric bill. But that's not even what I'm talking about. That's something else. You guys distracted me. The problem with, with our system, though, is that that company that owned our system, they went bankrupt. And they have a pretty unique system because, like I said, it's tied into the HVAC. So it wasn't a few months ago I go in to uh, adjust my thermostat, and the website's down. The website's gone. I actually no longer have a way to program my thermostats. Fortunately, they're kind of where we want them. But I can't make a change anymore. I can't get, I can't see, I have to assume the solar system is still working because I can't actually view it. And I've called a couple of companies that, to come and look at it. And basically they're like, yeah, this is kind of a proprietary system. There's really nobody that can do what they were doing. And I have no recourse because why? The company is dead. The other end of that contract is dead. So now I got to figure out some way for somebody to retrofit the system to a more standard system so I can actually use the thing again. But yeah, the the reality is, is that we all get this idea. We don't have to know the law of Moses when he says, speaking to those of you who know the law to understand how law works, how contracts work. And that's what he's talking about here. We have no recourse because the company's dead. And Paul's going to begin to demonstrate how we are dead to the law, and that begins to break that contract as well. So let's go on to the next verse in Romans. Um, there we go. 
Romans 7, 2 through 3, it says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So now Paul is going to begin to explain what he's talking about when he says right here in, in the Verse 1, when he said, don't you know that a law is binding only as a person lives? Now he's going to explain that in something that they're all going to understand. He's going to begin to talk about marriage. And the truth is, is, is as Christians, we should have no problem following along because we believe in the principle of you get married once and divorce isn't an option. And as Christians, we shouldn't have a, a problem following this particular example. Now, this one would be a hard one to argue with people who aren't saved or aren't Christians, because if they don't uphold biblical marriage, then it makes no sense to them. But the good news is everyone in this room does. So, this counts for you. And this is how it works. The only way to remarry or to join yourself to another without committing adultery is if your spouse has passed away. That's the only way to do it. And I also realize that that. Divorce can be justified in a marriage and a couple other circumstances, but this isn't actually an argument or a, a lecture on marriage. Paul's trying to prove a point about how contracts work when you have a law and how that can be, be broken. So it's not a discussion on marriage, but just being used to illustrate a point. And we can say safely that marriage, except for a few extreme cases, is for life. And if you leave somebody and you join yourself to another, then at that point, if a wife leaves someone and she, she's an adulteress, if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. I'd also want you to know that if you're a husband and you live with somebody else while your wife is still alive, then you are also an adulteress. Sound like he just broke his head. So, like I said, the only way for a husband or a wife to be joined to another is if one has passed away. If, if the other person has not passed away and they join, then they're in violation of their contract. They're in violation of the, of, of the law that says that they are together. But if the husband dies, the scripture says she is free from that law. And if she marries someone else, she is not an adulteress. Another way to look at this in today's world is, has anybody ever had to sign a non-compete agreement in one of their jobs? I've had to sign non-compete agreements. And uh, actually, the last job that I worked in, I had to sign one. And long story short, his wasn't technically... Uh, binding because of the way he worded it. But uh, he basically said that that uh, if I left his company, that I couldn't work in IT for two years. Well, it turns out somebody can't tell you that you can't earn a living. So fortunately, I was able to get another job. <laughs> no problem when I left that company. But when you sign a non-compete, the idea is, is as long as that place is in, is in business, as long as that place exists, then you are bound to whatever non-compete that you sign. You're not allowed to go another, to another company and share secrets and all of those things. That's the whole purpose. You can't steal away employees. You're bound to that non-compete. But if the company goes out of business, then you're no longer bound to that non-compete. Then you can do whatever you want. If, if they were to dissolve, the contract becomes null and void. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
So after he lays out the basis of his argument, he says, we all understand that if there's a contract in place, if one, if, if one person dies, then the contract is null and void. He said specifically in a marriage that if the husband dies and the, the wife is free from that contract, from that, from that law of marriage, and she is able to marry again. She's no longer bound to the law. And he says, now I'm going to explain to you how this applies to Christians. So first we have to understand that it says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And the implication is there is that we were once bound to the law. When we started out, we were under the obligation of the law. That was the, the plumb line. This is what God said, that if you want to be right with me, these are the things that you have to do. And if we didn't measure up, then we were under the penalty of that law. You know, going back to any contract that you're in, like if you think about the non-competes, if you break that contract, then you're under the penalty of that contract. If you sign a lease for an apartment and you just decide to up and leave, how many know they're going to come after you? They're going to come after you for what they are owed because you're, now if you die, there's not much they can do. Or if the apartment complex dissolves and there's not much they can do, but while you're alive, they can come after you. You can't just bail on a contract because you're under the penalty of that contract. So the reality is, is that when we were born at that moment, we became under the obligation of the law. And we know that because in Romans 3.23, it says we have all fallen short. There is not one that's righteous. We have all fallen short. Not a single person. Jesus is the only person that lived a sinless life. And we also know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty that we're under. So we're under the obligation of the law. We know that we've fallen short. So the penalty, and we know that the penalty is death. So now we're in a predicament. We're kind of in a hard spot because there's really only two options to solve this issue. One, the law has to just be completely set aside. We have to, you know, everybody has to agree on both sides that we're not going to, to en- enforce this contract anymore. Or the other option is we have to pay the penalty. We have to die. It's really the only two options in that situation. And God can't set the law aside because if he did, he would no longer be God. God is righteous. God is just. And to do anything that's not part of his character would mean that he's no longer God. So God has to continue to remain righteous. He has to continue to remain just. So setting aside the law, saying, you know what, I'm just going to forget about that from here on forward is actually not an option for him. So what is the only other option for us? To pay the penalty, to die. And that's actually exactly what God did in Christ. Because in Christ, we have died. Romans 6.3 says, do you not know, this was last or a couple weeks ago we talked about this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? So to baptize something, what that means is to fully whelm, to submerge, to fully whelm something in it. And one of the, uh, to be fully submerged, and one of the, the, the greatest things that I, I like to think about is the dying process, right? Because when, when they would dye stuff, they would put the dye in the water, they'd, they'd make sure it's all mixed together, and they would take the cloth that needs to be dyed, and they would stick it in the water. And they would also call that baptizing too, because they would completely submerge the cloth in the water. And when they, when they did this, how many know the dye that doesn't just kind of sit on top of the, on top of the cloth? It doesn't just kind of, you can't, if you dye something and you pull it out, you throw it in the washer, 
it stay in the color that it got dyed, right? Because what happens is, is when you fully submerge in it, it actually fuses with the garment. It becomes one with the garment. Now at this point, whatever happens to the garment happens to the dye. Whatever happens to the dye happens to the garment, right? Does that make sense? Because now they're fused together. They're one piece. The garment is the same. This is what happens to you the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. You are completely submerged, whelmed, baptized into him. The two of you have become one. He lives inside of you. And when he died, that means you died as well. When he died on the cross, by faith, you died on the cross as well. When he was dead and then buried, by faith, you were dead and buried as well. And this is important because in order to be free from the law, to be free of that contract, what has to happen? Somebody's got to die. And at the moment, that we were dead with him. The law no longer, we were no longer in contract with that law. We were no longer in obligation anymore. Because what happened? You died and you were raised again in newness of life. You were made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that you are a new creation. You're no longer who you were. The old person, the old guy, the one that died with Jesus, he's still obligated to the law. But Jesus paid the penalty for us and we're raised again that we are brand new. Jesus didn't stay dead and neither did we. That's what it says. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Through him we died so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We are given a brand new life and as a result, we can bear fruit. How many know that nothing dead can bear fruit? But we are alive, amen? And he goes on to say in verses 5 through 6, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. While we were unsaved, or what it says here, while we were in the flesh, we were under the authority of God's law, and by His law, we were condemned. Because we couldn't live up, we couldn't measure up. And before Jesus, all we were doing was bearing fruit for death. I don't know if you remember your life back then, but I remember mine, but it was a cycle of death, a cycle of stupid, over and over and over again. And we were producing sin, or we were producing death in our bodies because sin was aroused by the law. What does he mean that, that sin was aroused by the law? Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit? What does that mean? How does law arouse sin? Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, we found out that sin is given value or it's pointed out by the law. Romans 5.13 says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We begin to realize how bad things really were when it began to point out all the areas. I mean, there are some sins that we all get. You can't, you can't steal. We all know stealing's wrong, lying's wrong, murdering is wrong. But then we also have uh, laws that, that are pointed out to us like, thou shall not covet. Who would have known that that wasn't okay to want something somebody else had? But we find out that to want somebody else, what somebody else has to the point of them not even getting it, if you can't have it, that is a sin. But then we begin to look at his illustration and we begin to think that Paul, something's falling apart here. You just used this idea of, 
of marriage. You just use this idea of a husband and a wife. So who's who in this, this illustration, Paul? Because if you think it through, the reality is, is that we're the, we're the wife in this illustration because we have to die to the law. And the law is the husband. But you start thinking about this illustration. This is where people might think it breaks down because if a wife dies, she ain't getting married again because she's dead, right? If she does get married again, we're going to have some serious counseling with somebody. They got issues. So how does this work for us if we're the wife? How can we remarry again? Because in order for us to be released to the law and for us to still be living, the law would have to die. But we know that the law did not die because it still has reign over men who are unsaved, who are still holding them to a standard which they can't achieve. We know the law is still alive. That's actually why Paul said that if you want to uphold any part of the law, you have to uphold the entire law. you got to pick or you uphold the law of grace. So in Paul's illustration, if the woman died, she cannot remarry. She's dead. And this would be true for us as well, except for in Christ we are giving a new life, as we just talked about a moment ago. Romans 6, 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So we are released from the law because of our old self. Who we were, the self that was bound to the law, has died in Christ. That's why we do baptisms, because it's a picture of that. Because when you're above the water, this is where you were alive, then you died and you go under the water, you're buried with Christ. And when you've been raised out of the water in newness of life, you have a brand new life. And now we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old way of the law or the written code. And we can serve in the newness of the Spirit and we can finally live godly lives because we've been made brand new. Serving in the oldness of the letter is to accomplish a checklist. I've never done this, this, this in my life and then you realize, wait, I've done that one. I'm kind of out of options because as soon as you break the law, the penalty is death. But it also we always have to remember that being dead to the law does not mean that we get to behave lawlessly. It doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. It doesn't mean that we're not still required to be holy. Matter of fact, the Scripture says, I am holy, so you are holy. We're to be holy. It doesn't mean we behave lawlessly. What it means is that it's a motivation for us to actually live holy because we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. It no longer has a pull in our lives but instead out of a natural response to God's love for us. And now that we actually have the ability, we live for Him. Because we've been freed from the bondage of sin. People that aren't saved sin because that's who they are. They're not, they're not sinners because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. That makes sense. You've got to have the horse before the cart, not the other way around. We don't sin because we're sinners. So we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. That's an identity. Before the law, you don't have a choice. We're actually going to look into that next week and we look at the, the conflict of the two natures inside of man. That, but we're going to look at that. But, but people sin because they are sinners. But when you get born again, you're no longer a sinner. Even if you sin sometimes, you're no longer a sinner because that's an identity. Not a description. It's not a result of what you do. Because at that point, you're a saint. And you're able to live the life that God has called you to live. We're finally not in bondage to sin, required to sin, because it has control over us. Remember, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we're a slave to righteousness. And he goes on to say in, in verse uh, 7 and 8, 
What then, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had not, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. One of the things that, that as Christians we can sometimes make the wrong assumption is that, oh, the law is bad then. If the law is what gives power to sin, then obviously this is bad. Why would God even do this? It doesn't seem like a good thing. But the reality is, is the law is not bad. The law never actually made you do anything bad. It simply highlighted the things that you did so you understood that they were bad. It helps us to clearly see what is wrong and actually shined a light on our hearts and we realized that it was pretty dark in there because we finally found out what it means to be right. We could see it clearly. What were the requirements? And he goes on to say, like we talked about earlier, there are those sins that everybody knows is wrong. There's people that even that aren't saved, they understand that you shouldn't go ahead and rape, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't murder. Everybody realizes these things are wrong. But the one that Paul brings back, which is so weird, is, is how would I have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said it? We would have never known that that was an issue. It's like when you're, have you, have you ever had a, a relatively nice car, but maybe didn't have a perfect paint job, but you could pull it into a, like a Walmart parking lot with the fluorescent lights? Man, it would look awesome. I used to have this car. It was a, uh, it was a 1978 Turbo Trans Am. It was a pace car edition. It was beautiful, but it was old. <laughs> and it didn't, have, it didn't have a bad paint job, but it didn't have a good paint job. But I lived in this apartment complex, and, and underneath the covered parking, they had these fluorescent lights. And under the fluorescent lights, this car looked amazing. It looked so, it didn't look like there was a flaw, it didn't look like there was nothing. But as soon as the sun came out and you had the full spectrum of light, you could see all of the issues. You could see all of the problems where the paint color wasn't quite right, where it was things. And, and that's what the, the law did for us. It wasn't that the car changed. How many know that even under fluorescent lights, the car had a bad paint job? It still had some issues. But with those lights, I look great. But as soon as the full light of day came out, and that's what the law did, it illuminated, it pointed out, we could see all those areas where we thought everything was okay. Now, I know some of you guys now are going to start taking a better look at your car under fluorescent lights, and you'll see, you'll find it looks better. See, what happened was that sin took advantage of the law. He took advantage, sin took advantage of this fact. It's like, anybody ever told your kid not to do something? And then they did it just because you told them not to? Like, if I were to go and say, son, don't eat any cookies out of that jar up in the top cabinet behind the bag of flour. He would have never found that cookie jar because it's in a weird place. It's out of the way. He didn't even know about it. But when I pointed it out, now, he's listen, when he was a kid, one time, he still is a kid, when he was a littler kid, what was mocking you? Do you remember what it was? So there was cookies in the cupboard, and he calls Michelle, and he asks, can I have some cookies? And she said, no. And he calls back a little while later, Mom, the cookies are mocking me. That's <laughs> what he told us. He knew they were there. They were pointed out. 
You know, if you t- tell a kid to stay out of the cookies, that's the first thing they don't want to get into. Or what about, have you ever told somebody like, oh, do you see that person over there? They're right behind you. Don't look. What does everybody always do? They look. Yeah. <laughs> or what about the cliche? Don't look down. Everybody looks down because you point it out. You point at something. Or what you say, there was a, a study that was done or some sort of experiment that was done. There was this hole in a fence and they watched how many people would walk by this fence and look through the hole in a period of a given week. And nobody ever looked through the hole. But then the next week they put a sign above that said, don't look through the hole. And then everybody and their mother looked through the hole as soon as they put a sign over that hole. That's kind of what sin does, the law does to us. It's the law isn't bad. The law, but what it did was it highlighted these things. And what it did was it allowed sin to put the focus on itself instead of us keeping our eyes on God. It began to point out things and bring it to the forefront. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. In Jewish culture, around the age of 13, a person was required to keep the commandments. Up until then, they they weren't necessarily required to keep them in the same way that an adult was held accountable to them. And Paul's referring to this period right now. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, when I became of age and had to fully follow the law myself, it took and caused something inside of me. So the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Because sin came alive because it was really shining a light on who he really was. And the commandment, the law, which was supposed to bring life by laying out the requirements, only led to death because what it does is it pointed out how poorly he was achieving them. And the truth is, that's what it does for all of us. It points out how poorly we're achieving these things. Sin deceives us by promising things which it cannot provide. And then it uses the law to kill us because it has now caused us to violate the law, which was actually designed to show us how to be holy. We should never be surprised by sin when it tries to kill us, when it tries to rope us in. There was a local newspaper once reported an awful tragedy. The title was called Man Killed by Tiger. The man was not in a jungle. He wasn't at the zoo, and he didn't wander into a circus ring. And what happened was that the tiger was the man's pet. And he had found it when the tiger was only a very small kitten. He raised it, played with it, even took it for walks on a leash. And the tiger was the man's companion for years. But one day, while going for an ordinary walk, something the man had done with the tiger. Many times, the tiger turned around, attacked the man, and killed the man. And the community was shocked at the outcome. While very unusual, the people around had grown somewhat accustomed to seeing the man with the wild beast. But most experts were not shocked. They said the tiger is a wild animal. It was only a matter of time before it took control in its own way. Sin is just like that. So many of us live our lives thinking that we can get away with this little sin or it's not that bad or God's going to forgive me anyway. You know, the good news is is that God will forgive you, but there's still consequences. There's a difference between consequence and punishment. But we begin to let these little sins in our lives and we let that happen because at first it doesn't seem that bad. Nothing really bad is happening. Nothing's going on. But eventually sin will turn around and kill you because that's what sin does. And don't be surprised that it didn't seem like there was no issue all this time. This is what sin does. It seizes an opportunity to kill you at every chance that it has. And we'll end here in verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, it's so easy for us to Look at this information. We see that 
what sin has done through the law, and it's it's easy to take this information and argue that the law itself is bad because it's given sin strength. But it wasn't the law that caused the problem. The law was actually very good. It actually let us know exactly what was required. What was required. One of the greatest struggles that I have is when I'm given a task to do, but there's no requirements or no no way to do it, and someone gets upset because you didn't do it the right way. It's like, well, if you didn't tell me how to do it, how can I live up to it? How could I meet the expectation? And that's what the law did for us, is it laid out the expectation. It laid out how to be righteous. The problem was that none of us could do it. And then sin, being evil, because that's what sin is, it took advantage of this, and it took our eyes off of God and began to put its, make us put our eyes on sin. And how many know if you keep your eyes on sin, sin begins to rear its ugly head? Even in your own life, if you commit a sin, confess it to God, thank Him that, he's, that you're forgiven, and move on. If you spend the next three weeks focused on your sin and how bad you were, how, how, how awful things were, and you're just feeling really guilty, if you continue to focus on your sin, it'll continue to rear its life in your head. Instead, just say, thank you, God, that I'm forgiven, and move on. Put your eyes back on God and not on sin. That's why when we do communion, we focus on what Christ has done for us because it's in remembrance of Him, and we don't focus on how bad that we've been somehow trying to make ourselves right with God because you can't make yourself right with God. Only Jesus can. But that's why we have such an issue with the law because sin took advantage and it put the focus on it instead of on Jesus. So church, I want to challenge you. Be aware of these things. Understand what sin is trying to do in your life. Like we prayed this morning, we're not unaware of the schemes of the enemy. And we're not unaware of what sin is trying to do in our lives. Let's be a people that chooses to focus on Jesus, reckoning ourselves dead to the law, and keep our eyes on Him. And I promise you that if you will keep your eyes on Him, then you're going to live a life that is naturally in compliance with the law because you have been changed on the inside. You are brand new. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.